we, we ought to come away from this realizing God's got this thing covered. No matter how low you may feel, no matter how down and out Israel may have been in exile, for anyone to be able to read it now with a supernatural God with perspective, not only across lands, but of time. And we have that advantage. We are a blessed people to have the Bible and to read the Bible from our privileged perch of this place and this time. Praise God that this is who we are and this is when we are. And now as we as we take a look at this passage, Daniel chapter two, go ahead and start turning over to there. And this is one of the lowest points in Israel when Daniel is written. The Israelites are not just defeated, but even as we learned this morning, they are being chastised. They are being clearly punished and refined. But it's not just about them, because the story is going to lead even to us. And what happens to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, to to all of the captives that, that are taken in 600 BC, that far before this time, all of it is actually about you right now. And all of that is the little acorn. You, however, are the mighty oak because you are in Christ. That's a massive difference. So with some of that in mind right now, let's go ahead and start to, to, to read. But before I do, I want to draw your attention to um, a peak at the oak tree. A peak at the oak tree. The gr- one of the grandest moments in redemption story, again, creation, fall, redemption, restoration of all things, is when redemption is really happening. When God's people are being taken out of the fall, when their, their eyes are being opened, Jesus has come. Jesus has not only come and been glorified and ascended, He's now sent His Spirit into His people, and they are now whomping and stomping all over the known world and bringing Jesus and defeating Satan and making a massive inroad. And as they do so, there's nothing more glorious than Paul's second missionary journey. This is it depicted before me right now. And in Acts 17, it talks about the man of Macedonia beckoning him over. And he goes to Philippi with 60. And then after he's in Philippi, he then starts to make his way down the, the major Roman roads. And the first place it comes to, Acts 17 says, is he comes to, and let me zip in here a little bit more. Yeah, I know, I got skills. Um, <laughs> the first place that he comes to after Philippi is Amphipolis. Now, it's interesting that in Acts 17, it just says that he went to Amphipolis and then he went to Apollonia. That's all it says. And then the next thing it says is, and then they went on because there was no synagogue there to Thessalonica because there was a synagogue there. And that's a a, a simple enough statement. Acts 17, one and two. You could you could read it over and over again and think nothing of it. But what you're reading is nothing less than a glorious oak tree. Because what is happening here is that Jesus has come to Philippi. And now the next beachhead of Jesus is being established in Thessalonica. This is massive. But it is a very deliberate beachhead that he's establishing in both Philippi and then in Thessalonica, later in Berea, then in Athens, then in Corinth. That's Acts 17. It's exactly that. It's Acts 17. But why those spots? Well, Daniel will actually be the acorn that helps us to understand how this glorious tree came to be. So let's go ahead and and look back in in, uh, Daniel chapter 2 and how it all is going to point towards something really astounding. Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. God emptying Himself, coming in flesh to be able to come down and touch you and redeem you. Daniel 2. In the second year of His reign... Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me. I want to know what it means. 
Well, then the astrologers answered the king, Well, may the king live forever. Tell us the dream and we'll interpret it for you. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Right. Once more, they replied, yes, king, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. In other words, rubble houses cut up bodies. If you do not tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation is going to change. So then tell me the dream and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, there's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, by the way, however great and mighty, has ever asked a thing of a magician or an enchanter or an astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they don't live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious, we'll notice this about Nebuchadnezzar in a couple stories, that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So much for their dialogue. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. By the way, that phrase, the wise men here, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, anybody know what the word wise men is in the, in the Greek translation? Somebody just said it. Magi, magi. yeah. It's, it, they, they are the, the, the magi is the, is the word used in the court, uh, in the Greek language uh, for these, for these fellows. Uh, but the Magi are all under a death sentence. When Ariok, verse 14, the commander of the king's guard, had gone to put to death the, the Magi of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariok then explained the matter to Daniel. And at this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from God in heaven concerning the mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men. And so Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they are all part of the core of the wise men. They're, they're all magi uh, that are there. And God then reveals, it says in verse 19, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And I'm sure there was great relief. We're not going to be cut to pieces. Our houses are not going to be turned to rubble. Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah told us to build houses and to you know, move on in and, and enjoy all of this. And all of that was about to be put to rubble and their families cut to pieces. Now, Daniel then comes in verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon and said to him, don't execute the, the, the Magi. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. Ariok took Daniel to the king at once and said, I found a man among the exiles from Judah, of all places, who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also Bethlehazar, are you able to tell me what I saw in the dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, diviner can explain the king the mystery he has asked about, but there is... A God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in your bed are these. And now here it comes. He's going to lay it all on the line. I think he's thinking, God, hook me up here because I'm about to not interpret the dream, but actually tell him his dream. I can't imagine how frightening that would be with a king who like... Looks like he's about to have an aneurysm every time that he's inconvenienced and things don't go his way. As your ma majesty was laying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me. Not because I have greater wisdom than anybody else alive, 
but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand went through your mind. Your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. And as Daniel's saying this, I wonder if he kind of like, like kind of looks up and sees, how am I doing so far? Like, is, is this the dream? Like, can you nod or kind of give me a little something here? Help me out, all right? I'm dying up here. Come on. And, and, and off he goes. And then he says, the head of the statue. And here's a, you know, typical rendition that you can find. The head of the statue was made of pure gold. It's chest and arms of silver, belly, thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet. So the statue had no foundation or platform. Just struck it on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, like all of these precious things, they were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in summer. There's wheat and chaff. There's kernels in the chaff. And, and chaff is basically, you, you take a, um, a rake, typically, on the threshing room floor. It's on the highest spot of a mountain. And you take the rake and you throw all the wheat up into the air. And the wheat falls down and the chaff, the kind of the, uh, the, the, kind of the leafy, dry material that surrounds it, is blown away. Because the wind is, is pretty powerful on the top of a mountain in the summertime. So you just keep throwing it up in the air, throwing it up in the air. And before long, you're left with just pure wheat. But the chaff is as though it's nothing. It's just, it's just light and, and, uh, and airy, and, and it amounts to nothing. And what he's basically saying is, all that you saw in that statue, all that you're concerned about, about what does this represent, all of that actually amounts to nothing. Nothing compared to this little rock that just kind of is not touched by human hands, this little rock that makes its way down and bangs up against this statue but then this, this rock, we'll, we'll read on, it struck the statue, uh, I'm sorry, it's chaff on the threshing room floor in summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace of insignificance is what he's talking about here. But the rock then struck the statue, became a huge mountain, and it filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. Yes, I'm still alive. Your majesty... You are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind, the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, wherever they live. He has made you ruler over them all. You, king, are that head of gold. Congratulations. But after you, after you, another kingdom will arise. Now, Get it straight. It's inferior to yours. It's silver. It's not gold. And then a third kingdom, one of bronze. That's going to rule over the whole earth too. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Let me pause here. If you'd like to appreciate the depth of this interpretation and even some of the things that I'll say about it, I would encourage you to, to, to read on through Daniel's chapter 7, 8, and 9. All of these images are repeated with rams and goats and leopards with four wings and lions with, with wings. They're all, though, just different representations of the four kingdoms. And the four kingdoms are actually named by name by him later in the book to the degree that he names Babylon, he names Persia, he names Greece, and then looking way into the future... He names a kingdom that won't exist until 167 B.C. And this is 600 B.C. And it is a, a kingdom of iron that's going to crush all of the others, which will be Rome, the, the next kingdom that comes. But, but he actually names all of those kingdoms by name. And he'll name some of the, uh, well, the Bible will name some of the rulers along the way. So he has now kind of laid all of this out. Let, let me move on from here. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, verse 42, so the kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. 
In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, will never be chaff, will never blow away into insignificance, will be an everlasting significance with full on dominion. And that reign will be forever and ever. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and yes, even the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and his interpretation is trustworthy. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. And Daniel said, whew, at that moment. But maybe also Daniel said, ah, too bad. Because obviously Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't get it. And he's still in his pluralistic mindset of, wow, it's a good thing that I'm treating these guys nice because their God is now working in concert with all the other gods, including Bel and all the other gods of Babylon. And I'm going to go ahead and give honor to that because it seems like at the moment, this God is hooking me up in a good way. And, and so he makes this offering, but he's not yet one that recognizes the real depth and dominion of God. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, not the God is the God of gods, your God and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal the mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position. What was that high position? He was head of all the Magi. He, he then discipled all the Magi. Over the entire province of Babylon, he was given rule and placed in charge of all the Magi, the wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at royal court. Let's, let's recognize what is going on here in this acorn so that we can go back to the oak tree in a minute and just be astounded by God's sovereign plan that has been custom bespoke curated for your very deliverance. And not just for your deliverance, for your ongoing effectiveness to allow that tree to, to branch out further and further, or for, to use the analogy here, of that great mountain to continue to have dominion and to spread over all the world. And now, as we look at the symbols that, that he gave here, he speaks of the head of gold. And he says, you, you are that head of gold. And that head of gold has been cranking since you came to the throne in 625 B.C. It's now maybe 587 B.C. or so. And you are going to continue until 539 B.C. And yet, as unbelievably uh, majestic is this statue and impenetrable is this kingdom of Babylon, it's going to come to an end. Not in hundreds of years, but believe it or not, it's going to come to an end in about 40 years. Very soon, this kingdom is going to come to an end. And you knew that Nebuchadnezzar was on shaky ground even when he was having the dreams. He was unsettled, it said, as God was allowing him to have dreams again and again. And the reason for that is, is no matter how great your achievement, no matter how great uh, your actualization of the person that you become, if all of that is not built on God, you're always going to have unsettled dreams. Yeah. This was my life. I, I love this story because this was exactly my life. I, I was, I mean, not to, to his degree, of course, but the, the fact that I was always unsettled in my dreams, I, I, I was, you know, kind of achieving at a pretty good rate. I, I went to an Ivy league school in the U S 
Uh, it was a, a very kind of uh, effective business school as well, so it opened doors for me. And I was marching up the, the corporate corridors of Procter and Gamble, and then I was uh, kind of brought over to Coca-Cola. And then as I worked for the Coca-Cola company, same thing, like advancing before anyone else my age. Uh, matter of fact, if anybody was like near my age and they were kind of you know m making the, uh, the the advances that I was, I'd you know kind of be like, whoa, hold on, I got I got like double down here. Let me come up with something else. Let me let me get ahead of these people. But but that was my life, and I was you know taking great pride in all that I was achieving. And then it didn't help that they were trying to make us into you know kind of uh, super warriors, and you know they'd send us away to memory schools and send us away to uh, public speaking schools, and uh, you kind of train us into to be kind of personally fulfilled and, and actualized in every possible way. And you know, and I'm just so full of myself and so ridiculously proud of of everything that I thought that I was. But the whole time, as everything is going at the most amazing pace, all the time I was having dreams that later on, I, the, the term for it is called imposter, the imposter complex. And what I dreamt is that I was going to do something that would bring me down in horrific shame. And that I would either make a mistake or I would conduct affairs in a way without integrity. And it would be so public and that somehow or another, everything that I had done would come crashing down around my ankles in absolute ruin. And I had that dream again and again. I can't tell you how little peace that I had. No matter what I did, no matter what I achieved, no matter how much I tried to you know, do right or fireproof myself, it, it came back. And, and praise God that once I was baptized, never had that dream again. I mean, praise God that I now was not building my security on my achievement or any sort of self-reliance. Now all my security, all my trust was in Jesus and, and his righteousness and what he could do for me. Nebuchadnezzar has not learned that lesson. And even though he's achieving, what, a billion times more than, than what I did in a tiny little corporate corridor of one little company, uh, he was the, the superpower of the earth. And even with all of that, even with all the security that can come with that, he still had that depth of insecurity. And let me encourage you as you sit here now, if these are the aching doubts that kind of keeps at you like a splinter in your mind, well, then it's time to maybe step back and wonder, what is God trying to do as he's knocking upon the, the door of your consciousness with this? Is he trying to help you to see that maybe you're trying to build your security on something so much more around self or family, good things? Maybe it's around some, some other Thing that you perceive to be a good thing. But if a good thing becomes an ultimate thing, then it becomes an idol. And the minute that anything is before God in what gives you your identity, what gives you your respect, what, what gives you your um, affirmation, the minute that you say to yourself, yes, thank you, Jesus. But if I could get this job, then I will have really revived. Yes, thank you, Jesus. You came, death on a cross. Yeah, I get all that. But if I could have this girl, and, and she's a Christian, but if I could have, then, then I will really feel as though I, I am a complete man. And then I will, you know, feel, feel my identity. And, you know, flip that around, right? To boy, girl, and any of that. Whatever that might be, if that's what it is, when I finally am able to have children, when I, when I finally have security, when I finally graduate, when I finally get that degree, when I'm finally recognized by the church, any of those things, well, you're setting yourself up for a life of Nebuchadnezzar insecurity. And, and it may not be of Nebuchadnezzar proportions, but it's of the same absolute shaky, rocky base that will be nothing more than chaff that will go away into insignificance. At, at the at the end of it all, if there's anything that okay. Once I lose this weight, once I achieve this goal, once I have this connection, any of those things, if that's what is going to truly make you feel like now I've arrived, then you have an idol, and Jesus is not Lord, and Jesus is not your joy. Wow. Let's make sure that we don't lose that as we look at Nebuchadnezzar here. But nonetheless, all of this is merely the acorn. But what a brilliant acorn that we're seeing here. Let's move on. Come on, Ed. So while he is the head of gold, more is coming, including a shoulder and chest of silver. Uh, what is the next empire? He talks about it in chapters 7, 8, and 9. The next empire is the Persian Empire. Uh, 
And that, that Persian Empire will, will actually come in rather bloodlessly and rather interestingly. And I'll talk about it in a minute. Then he mentions, of course, the belly of bronze, belly and thighs of bronze. What's the next empire that is mentioned again and again, seven, eight, and nine by Daniel? Greece. Then in Greece rises to power through Alexander the Great in 331 BC, uh, reaches its, its zenith uh, during that time, but then is usurped by Rome, 167, 164 BC. Uh, and that's the, the one nation that is not mentioned by name. Uh, but he's doing pretty good to be able to actually mention all these others by name and, and to be able to have all of the order and the dates and the characteristics of those kingdoms in view. But let me let me now say that what what Daniel has been shown by God is rather astounding. And later, these dreams and these visions will be affirmed to him by the angel Gabriel himself. And what he is showing him is nothing less than God's plan for you. And it's really remarkable because this, this head of gold, Babylon, is then the, the, the reason that Israel is taken into captivity. Every one of these steps is going to land in a second missionary journey where Paul will leave Philippi, go through Apollonia, through Amphipolis, or the other order, Amphipolis and Apollonia, and he won't stop there. Why is the question you need to ask. Why will he then go to Thessalonica? And why is it that he can go to Thessalonica? Why is it that he can go to Philippi? He can go to Berea. Why is it that he can do all of these things? Why is it that the gospel can spread on that second missionary journey with such speed and with such effectiveness? The reason it can is because of every single one of these fine-tuned, handcrafted movements by God to raise up kingdoms and establish the conditions so that that oak tree is going to be all the more flourishing. And so what has to happen first in order for there to be synagogues that Paul can go to along that road? Well, the first thing that has to happen is there need to be Jews that love the word of God. As of 600 BC, the Jews began to disdain the word of God. Not just faithless Israel who, who apostatized themselves much earlier, but now Judah, Judah and Benjamin, the, the people of David, even they, they have absolutely neglected and thumbed their nose at the very word of God. So why do they get taken into captivity? Yes, partly to chastise them. But as they're in captivity, it's, it's interesting as you, as you read even in Daniel, D Daniel even, even says, as I read in the prophet Jeremiah, as I read in the law, when Daniel has his great confession prayer, you realize that now Daniel is a man who is steeped in the word of God. That's something that would be an abnormality if we were reading just a few years earlier of the people in Judah. But Daniel becomes representative of what the rabbis have all talked about. In captivity, the Jews looked around and realized there's no way to make sacrifice to God. The temple is not here. The temple is in ruins. The only thing that we have are the texts that we brought with us. And they became a people of the word. And in captivity, the Jews gained an identity that would never depart from them. They became a people that, oh, how I love your law, was the reality not only of their lips, but of their soul. Oh, how I love your law. And it was through Babylon that the people of God reclaimed their fervor and their love for the word of God. Again, we're going to have to have synagogues waiting, waiting for Paul and Silas and Barnabas. And they're going to have to be in Thessalonica and in Berea and in uh, Philippi and in Athens and Corinth. How is this going to happen? Well, there's going to have to be people that are Jews that love the word. And here's how it starts. Is God reinstills a love for his word. But then the next kingdom is Persia. Persia rises, as we mentioned, in 539 BC, just 40 years later. So after God has had this time with his people, and it's 70 years, by the way, that they end up there. And it's the predictions, of course, in Jeremiah 29 before they go in. But, but as they've had this 70 years in captivity, 
What happens there? They love the word. But then as soon as that love of the word is instilled for more than a generation, the first generation and then the second generation passes it on to the next generation. Now you have two generations of clear trajectory of people that love the word. And now God realizes, all right, we've changed the culture. Now it's time to spread them out. And, and with that, he orchestrates the rise of the Persian Empire that happens, again, bloodlessly, miraculously, right out of Babylon, as strong as they are. And Persia usurps it by the, the force of one man in particular. And that man's name is Cyrus. Now, Isaiah writes about him in vivid detail. He says, in Isaiah 44, verse 26, just listen on this one. He who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. Again, this is people in exile that are hearing this. It shall be inhabited. It shall be rebuilt. And of their ruins, I will restore them. It is God who says to the watery deep, be dry and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, Cyrus is the ruler of Persia. He says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will accomplish all that I please. He will build. Uh, he will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue the nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. And that's exactly what Cyrus does. He opens the doors and sets the captives free. The Jews to be able to go back to Jerusalem, all throughout Judea, to be able to rebuild. But it's not all that they do. Because God then allows them, as they are taken out of their homeland, and, and their homeland now is, is in, in shambles. So many of them don't go back. And then this is the state of affairs during the Persian Empire, the Jews then are what's known as the diaspora, the dispersion of the Jews. Again, why is God doing this? So that the gospel, when the oak tree comes, is going to spread in glory. And just to show off, Isaiah 44 and 45 were written 150 years before Cyrus was born. 180 years before he ascended to the throne. God's got his act together. And in case you're wondering, oh God, what does all this mean? He's got your plan. And it's on just exactly the right course. The course of his sovereign brilliance. So here's the coolness so far, right? We got, we're going to have to end up with these like little centers of of beachheads for faith that Paul's going to have called synagogues. And they're going to have to be people loving the word, accessing the word, reaching the Gentiles, and he's going to be able to have to get to them somehow, just like Acts 17 shows. So what have we got so far to make that happen? Well, we got the Jews taken out of Israel. We got the Jews loving the word of God again. We got them honoring the word of God, copying the word of God, making lots and lots of copies of the word of God again. And then you have, while they're in Babylon, the synagogue system invented. So synagogues are invented in Babylon. And then with Cyrus, the gates are open and out they go. And guess what they do? They take the word of God with them. They settle all over the place. And now that they're used to living in a synagogue system, they don't have to go back to the temple. They can actually find their fulfillment in the word of God. And so they go all over the known world, all over the Mediterranean basin, all over the places of the second missionary journey. And what do they do? They established synagogues all over the place. Wow. You know where they didn't establish synagogues? Amphipolis and Apollonia. Keep that in mind. We know from history and we know from the Bible text. There was not a synagogue in Amphipolis or Apollonia. So here's what we've got so far. This. Now, this is pretty good. But God's desire has always been that he would be a blessing to all nations. Not just to the Jews, and not just to Jews that now live all over the place. Somehow, this has got to be a city on a hill, a brilliant light, 
by which you all, Gentiles, are, are going to be able to have access to the wonders and the love of God. And so what's the next kingdom? Alexander the Great. Young man, 331 BC. He's shown as a leopard in chapter 7, 8, 9. Chapter 8 in particular, I believe. Why a leopard? Because in the fastest order as we've seen, he actually sweeps through and conquers the entire known world. And he does so not because he has a bloodlust, and not because he has a pride desire to have all of these lands under his control, but he does so because he's a student of Aristotle. And he believes that the greatest gift that he can give to the world is not just to subdue it, but to bring it into wonderful order and to be able to uh, export Hellenism. Hellenism is just a way of saying the, the, the Greek uh, school of thought. To, to be able to bring the culture of the golden age, which has just come through in Greece. The golden age of Greece, if he could just spread the logic, the rhetoric, the elocution, the grammar, the philosophy, the metaphysics. If he could spread all of that, wow, what a gift he would give to all the known world. And so as he conquers all the known world, including all of the places where those synagogues have been set up, he then brings Greek culture, but more importantly, Greek language everywhere. And now the entire world, in that known world, has a common thread. And it's literally called Common Greek, or Koine Greek. And something happens during that time. He has his best scholars grab all the most important texts that he encounters on his journey of conquest. And he gathers them, and he has the best scholars translate them into the Greek language. And that's how we get what's called the Septuagint. It's a Greek word for 70 because he had 70 scholars, not him, but a guy named Ptolemy a couple of years later, uh, in, in Alexandria, Egypt, the best university town of the day. In Alexandria, Egypt, they take the Hebrew text and they translate it into Greek. And it's an amazing translation. It's the translation that Jesus read when, when he reads in Luke chapter 4. But, but now this, this text, the word of God, and if you compare... Let's say the Hammurabi Code or the Epic of Gilgamesh. If you compare any ancient documents to the Bible and to see the social justice, the protection of widows, the protection of orphans, the, the, the return of lands, the equity, the, uh, the egalitarian nature of the word of God, social justice on all these pages. You know, there may be seeing some things that make us recoil given our modern vantage point and our modern sensibilities. But if you're living then... My goodness, if you're a Gentile and you hear this, you're like, what is, is there such a God who's so kind? Such a God who is so forgiving? Such a God who is, who, who overlooks an offense? Who is this God? I want to know more about this God. And guess what? There are now synagogues all over their town and they are now teaching and preaching out of only one language. Because guess what language is no longer in use at all? Hebrew. Hebrew dies as a language. And as a matter of fact, even in Jesus' day, they spoke Aramaic, they didn't speak Hebrew. Hebrew was only revived as a language in 1946 when the nation of Israel was brought back together. And the language that they all spoke was Greek, Koine Greek. Yes, in everyday affairs, Jesus and, and they spoke Aramaic, but the Bible they read, the Bible they read was always the Koine Greek Bible. This Old Testament was the Old Testament that they read. So this Old Testament is now all over the known world in the language that everybody knows. Whether you're from Phrygia or Cyrus or Lyon, wherever it was, you all knew this language. And as you kind of were on the outskirts of this synagogue and you heard this being read, it would have touched your soul comparatively to anything else that you ever heard. And, and what began to be established through this is what's called God-fearers. As a matter of fact, Acts 17 says that in these synagogues, there were not just Jews, but there were God-fearers that were there. What's a God-fearer? It's a Gentile who has completely become part of the synagogue, but has not gone all the way to be a full proselyte uh, that has not circumcised himself if, if he's a man or is a woman part of a family that would go that far. But they were adherents to the word of God. They were regulars at the temple. They participated in everything, just not fully. And, and so now what do we have 
through Alexander the Great. We now have all of these synagogues with people that love the Word of God and they're all reading it in a language that all the people can understand. God's plan is coming together. And it's beautiful the way that He's using what, what you would call Western civilization and the history of, of Western Civ to actually orchestrate with such intimate care for you this perfect condition so that when Jesus comes, the gospel is going to do nothing less than explode. Come on. But this is not all. Somehow, Paul has got to be able to travel from place to place. And before I look at this last kingdom, let's just read it in particular. Turn over to Acts chapter 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, remember they were coming from Philippi, coming across the major road, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Suddenly these words mean a lot more to you, don't they? As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer, rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of, hear this, God-fearing Greeks. And quite a few prominent women. All the conditions are there. The only thing that we haven't looked at is how do you get from Philippi to Amphipolis to Apollonia to Thessalonica? Well, the way that you get there is through the last kingdom. And it's no small deal, it's one of the biggest deals that had to happen. And what is that last kingdom? Rome. This is Caesar Augustus. He is the great emperor who brings in the Pax Romana. While Rome rises to supremacy in 164 BC, it's just before the birth of Christ that Augustus Caesar ascends to the throne after Julius Caesar. And the thing that he ushers in is quite remarkable. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. A 200 year stint of peace throughout such a vast empire. And what do you do with all your soldiers when you have that much peace? You know what they do? They clean up the seas of pirates. They clean up the roadways of bandits. They bring civil order to every corner of the empire. Every path that Paul will take on the second missionary journey could not have been possible or even safe or even navigable if not for what happens under the Pax Romana and happens rather quickly. Just before Jesus is born, God gets Rome to work. And what does he do? He gets them to connect all the dots of the second missionary journey. And Rome builds roads. The Appia Via, the, the famous roads of Rome that crisscross the empire along all the routes of those Jewish synagogues. And interestingly, it may seem as though God is just connecting major... I mean, it may seem like Rome is connecting major towns. But you know what they're really doing? They're connecting the dots between Jewish synagogues. Where there's a Greek Bible being heard by God-fearing Greeks and good-hearted Jews. And people wanting to know, where is this Messiah? What is the fulfillment of what we are reading? And then a messianic fever during the Roman Empire begins to bubble up among all of Israel, but also among all of the synagogues. And so God, through Rome, has been able to establish great roads, great safe passages to all of these synagogues, which under Alexander the Great, he established with God-fearing Greeks and a Greek Bible and Greek logical thought so that they could be persuaded, which is a Greek term right here of, of, of logic and, and Aristotelian uh, logic and, and argumentation. God establishes all of this under Alexander the Great, under the great Greek Empire. Before that, he gets them dispersed under Cyrus. And before that, under Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, he gets them loving the word of God again. God has done all of this so that at just the right time, under the perfect conditions, he then looks down and says, Jesus, I think we're ready. Let's do this thing. You ready to empty yourself? You ready to empty yourself? And become the Messiah? 
Well, the conditions are right. It just simply took Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. But you know what? They ain't nothing but a thing. Because the nations, Isaiah also says, are but a drop of water in the ocean. They're a drop in the bucket. They're chaff. Nothing more than chaff. What really matters is what you're about to establish. And you're going to establish a kingdom without end. You're going to be that small rock. And you're going to crush those other kingdoms into oblivion. Into being footnotes in history. And, and, and at, the, at the end of the day, nobody's going to name their kid Nebuchadnezzar. And everybody's going to name their kid Daniel. And there's a real reason for that. Because my kingdom will have everlasting significance. While those kingdoms will fade into bizarre obscurity. And when you hear about them, you say, oh, that's an interesting bit of trivia. And at best, you remember it for a moment and let it go. But the story of my kingdom will never be forgotten. And so having orchestrated nothing less than the superpowers of the earth. Brought them under his dominion so that this little acorn could... Be germinate in, in, into something that is beyond what anybody could have ever imagined. And even anybody reading this story thought, wow, isn't this a great story? The Magi didn't die. I'm glad Daniel saved the Magi. I'm glad Daniel got the dream right. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad Nebuchadnezzar didn't have more of a hissy fit and, you know, spill more blood. Like, that's all the story is. It's a nice acorn. It's nice. But my goodness, when we understand what it really blossoms into, wow, how amazing is this tree. How amazing is this kingdom? How amazing is this great oak? And so we have just the right conditions thanks to all that God has done so that the glory of Paul's missionary journeys bringing the good news about Jesus to all corners to be able to go from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea to Athens to be able to go to all of those places where the conditions were right, that you had Jews that loved the word of God, Jews that were able to be dispersed with the word of God that had invented synagogues, now go to all corners of the earth with synagogues with a love for the word of God, and now suddenly they're reading it in a language that everybody could understand, and talking in a logic flow that everybody can use to be able to interpret the word of God. And suddenly now these people, these Gentiles, hear the word of God, and their hearts are aflame. For this God and wondering how do we get to be part of this? And as they're wondering how can we be part of this? God is building roads so that a man with a message of the good news of the Messiah can get to all of them and tell them how they can be part of this. And he builds the roads and he clears the way and he makes safe passage. And Paul and his companions zip on through at an amazing pace. Just three weeks in Thessalonica, just a, a year and a half in Corinth, three years in Ephesus. And the word of God is in all of these places in all of its grand glory. And, and we look back at what he did in Daniel and think, yes, interesting. Nah, more than interesting. It's a sovereign God who 600 years before Jesus knew all exactly of what he was doing. And to conclude, just to show off, just to kind of say, check out my glory, just to drop the mic at the end of all that he has done. You know what God does to cap it all off? At the birth of Jesus, Galatians 4 says, but when the time had set, had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When God had set the time, just exactly as he had wanted, Jesus was then born. And who shows up at just that right time? Who are the people that studied astrology and movements and times and stars? Who was the head of those people? Who was the one that taught them how to understand the exact timings and places of God's sovereignty? The head of the Magi himself, Daniel. Daniel, who said all of this in a vision so far ahead of time, had his disciples who taught their disciples who taught their disciples. And then just to show, I have goosebumps even as I say this, just to show off at the birth of Jesus, the disciples of the disciples of the disciples of Daniel. 
show up and pay homage to the king. And if you're ever having a hard day, if you're ever wondering, my goodness, am I trying to do this out of my own effort? God has already arranged all of this. Just as God in the first century arranged the synagogue system just so perfectly, you know what he's done for you to relaunch things again and again? He's established something called universities. Those universities gather people at just the age when you're asking the questions, what is life really all about? With other like-minded folks and other people that have really a lot of advantages so that they can be the forerunners of the message of God so that you can be those forerunners and that you can reach others with the message of God. God is making no mistakes. It's no wonder that as God's grand plan is launching and relaunching and finding rebirth again and again in new great ways of of His Word being able to catch fire, don't think for a second that you invented campus ministry. In 600 B.C., God already had this in the plans. God already knew that this is how He would gather people together today as He did in the synagogues. At a time just right, at a time so accessible, at a time when you can get there. I think if you realize that all of this is the dominion of God and the handcrafted plan of God, my goodness, you walk onto those campuses knowing that you walk in alignment with a God that has used Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, and Caesar Augustus to fine-tune his plans as well as all of the nations to develop their universities now, and you walk onto your university knowing full well that I am not swimming upstream. I am in alignment with the very will of God. God wills it. Let's go. Let's bring it. Amen. Amen.